Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Welcome to B'nai My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. From our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week where we study the Torah, the Word of God. We set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and we worship the Lord with praise. Once, uh, once again here at the ministry, we've got a couple of announcements that we, uh, I'd like to share with you for this week. Um, we, Passover is going to be here before we know it. And so we here at the ministry have a great deal of resources to help you prepare your heart and your home for the Passover, the Lord's Passover. If you go to MessianicMarketplace.com, search Passover, you can see the wide range of products that we have, teachings, um, Kiddush, uh, or Seder plates, I should say, Kiddush cups, and things for you to host a Passover Seder in your home. It's never too early to start preparing your home and your heart for the new cycle of feasts coming up this year. Also in the cycle of feasts, we have Shavuot, our uh, conference that we are doing in Dallas, Texas. If you go to ShavuotEvent.com, you can look at that if you're not familiar with that. It's also called Pentecost. Fifty days after the Feast of First Fruits, uh, there, June 7th through 9, we're going to have a conference there in Dallas with a great number of brethren, like-minded believers, uh, to celebrate that feast together. So if you haven't registered for that yet, go to that website, ShavuotEvent.com. You can get your family registered there. And then don't forget, you also need to confirm your accommodations with the hotel there in Dallas. All that information is on the website. Um, so we look forward to seeing all the brethren there. We also, uh, Camp Yeshua registration is still open. That's our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. We still have some spots to fill up. Any youth that have been delaying uh, to sign up for that, we encourage you get signed up and we're going to have another amazing time this summer at our Youth Summer Camp. Even if you aren't able to participate in a youth camp, we do encourage you that if you'd like to make a financial contribution that helps some youth to come to camp, uh, you can make a donation to the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund. The details there are at llgive.com, and you can make a donation to that, and that helps not only youth attend Camp Yeshua, but other uh, brethren to attend other events throughout the year uh, that perhaps aren't able to pay the full registration cost. You can help them to have an amazing time either celebrating the feasts with us or help a youth to have a once-in-a-lifetime experience at summer camp. So once again, thank you for joining us. We hope you have an amazing Shabbat, a nice refreshing uh, rest from the week. And now let us set apart the Sabbath from the rest of the week with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath.
sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. <laughs> now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamborach. Baruch Arunai Hamborach Leolaham Bahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Mich 
Blessing of the Messiah. Baruch Ata Adonai Elheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Et Derech HaYeshua B'Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru Vnei Israel Et Hashabbat Laasot Et Hashabbat Ladrotam Berit Olam Vnei Avayom Vnei Israel Othi Leolam Kesheshet Yamim Asadunai Et Hashemayim Vet Haaretz Avayom Hashavi Shavat Vayinafash All together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinantam l'avanecha V'tepardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha, v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mazuzot b'techa, u'visharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. 
You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
angels cry Holy, holy is the Lord And angels cry Holy, holy is the Lord Angels cry, holy, holy is the Lord. Blessed be your name, choose name. King Mitzion Tetzetora, King Mitzion to the book of Exodus, to chapter 27. Hold your finger at verse 20 there at the end of the chapter, where our portion will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, I will do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mechol ha'amim Venetan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha'amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Tetzaveh, which comes from verse 20 of chapter 27. Let me read there to the end of that chapter where it says this. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Here in our Torah cycle, we are in the midst of continuing to receive the instruction of the establishment of the tabernacle that was in the midst of the children of Israel. This is the dwelling place of God that we are building here. Last week, we talked about the various furnishings of the holy place and the sanctuary that was to be built, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah, the coverings that were over that sanctuary, and then also the altar of burnt offering and the outer court. And we are building the very temple, the tabernacle of God. This is going to form the blueprint for what the temple will be when it is, was built in, in Jerusalem. But right here, Moses is on the mountain receiving all of these instructions. 
And he's giving, God is giving Moses all of these words and things for the children of Israel to put their heart into the effort of building this house and establishing the tabernacle, the very dwelling place of God. Our portion begins here with a command where it says, and you shall command the children of Israel. That word command is, you shall command is tetzaveh, the title of our portion. The root word of that is sav, which is just command. We will have a Torah portion in the book of Leviticus that is entitled sav, which means just command. And that will connect that portion, when we get there, back to this one, when we're talking about the establishment of the priesthood and the instructions that the priests are to do when it comes to the tending of the tabernacle, specifically in the area of tending to the daily offerings that were offered before the Lord on the altar. In our portion here in Exodus, receiving this instruction, we have this command to all the children of Israel to bring olive oil that is to be used as fuel for the menorah, the lampstand that is inside the holy place, the sanctuary, the menorah that we built, the seven branch uh, menorah that was built in our previous portion. We now are commanded for the children of Israel to bring this oil to fuel this lamp. If you remember, inside this sanctuary, I described last week, there were four different coverings that went over the top of this sanctuary. There was also a veil and a door that prevented light coming in from the outside. Inside this place would have been very dark if it was not for any light. We now receive this command for the children of Israel to give of themselves to bring this oil. It's another offering that the children of Israel are to give and to bring in the service of the tabernacle. If there was not this oil, if there was not the fuel for the menorah, there would be no light in the sanctuary. Our God is a God of light that we are not when we read the scripture and we talk of darkness versus light. Darkness is always associated with evil or the things of the world and things we're not supposed to be associated with. God, the God we serve is a God of light. And so he wants inside his house, inside his sanctuary, there to be light burning continually and perpetually. Even in the middle of the day, all the coverings would have prevented light from coming in. So this menorah had to be lit constantly for light to be provided. Very fascinating when you look into the actual concept and the idea of olive oil and olives being brought. See, the children of Israel had to bring this and it had to be the purest olive oil that could possibly be had. If anybody's ever done any studies or even heard previous Torah portions on the idea of olives and olive oil and how it's made, what it is is you harvest all the olives off of a tree and then they are pressed. And when that first pressing of the olives, they produce a rich, pure, clean olive oil, oil that is capable of being used for cooking. It's capable of being used for fuel. But this is also the purest, best oil you can possibly get if you walk in through your uh, grocery store, you go to the aisle where all the oil is, you'll find different grades of olive oil, and you'll find a variety of them. And when you find extra virgin olive oil, you'll see sometimes written on the label, it says the first cold press. What that is, is that was the least amount of effort of something just pressing it, and you just get the purest, richest oil that comes immediately 
out of the fruit. Now, this oil, this extra virgin olive oil, is the highest grade you could possibly get. And that is the only grade that was acceptable in the service of the tabernacle. This oil would be used also for the creation of the anointing oil that was going to be used to anoint the priests and to set them apart from any of the other children of Israel. This is, and this is a theme that is going to go throughout the entire Torah portion that we have for this morning. This idea of anointing somebody to set it apart from perhaps the layman or perhaps the common man. We are going to be speaking of not only about the oil, but we're going to go into the garments of the high priest and how that sets him apart from all of the other priests and most definitely sets him apart from all of the other children of Israel. So this idea of being set apart is going to be a theme. With this oil that they would use, again, it was the purest, cleanest oil that could possibly be produced. Now, olives, they actually produce a great amount of oil. And so, the, obviously, people that grow olives, people that produce olive oil, they want to get the most yield out of their product. And so, yes, you have this first cold press that produces the highest grade, but that's not the only thing they use when it comes to trying to draw the oil out of the olives. What they will often do in other processes is they will crush them and they will beat them to a pulp to get as much yield out of the olives as you possibly can. In fact, in the process of doing it, um, they say that there's three different presses that takes place. That the first press is, of course, that pure extra virgin olive oil that comes out first. The second one used in it, what it has is it has some of that pulp, some of that flesh of the fruit, as it's called, that sometimes is in the oil and mixed in, and there's kind of some sediment there. And what they'll do with that oil is they'll filter that out. So it's still clean and pure, but it's not as pure as that first press. And then, of course, they will do everything they can to get that last little bit, everything they can get out of that oil. And, of course, that's going to be the lowest grade of oil you could get. It's full of flesh and pulp and sediment. And, yeah, they can still clean and try to filter that out, but you almost can't get rid of all of that. There will be some cloudiness to it. Now, there's different uses of these different grades of oil and as I said there's different things you can do of course you can use it for cleaning you can use it for fuel and in typical fashion in the ancient world you wouldn't use the highest grade of olive oil for common practices such as fuel for a lamp and you'd use the lower grade oils and then what you'd actually do with even the lowest grade one of the best things that you could do with that is make soap out of it and that you use that for cleaning and you can create soap with, with that lowest grade of olive oil and you get the most use out of the olives. What's interesting, if you think about it, as you're talking about the crushing and the pressing of olives, you're starting to see sort of a parallel between what the, what the goodness of the olive can produce and what you can use it for. You can take this pressing of this olive and you can use something that creates anointing oil that sets something apart. You can create food. You can use it for food and for cooking. And food, of course, is something good we all need to nourish our bodies, to give ourselves the nourishment that we need. Obviously, you need fuel for your lamp so that you can see. And then we all need to remain clean. We all need to bathe from time to time. So the fact that you can get soap out of the same, out of the same product is kind of just a win-win all the way around. But you can also see in that explanation, you can also see the same things we get out of spiritually from our relationship in the testimony of the Messiah. 
The Messiah literally means the anointed one, that he has been set apart. And through the Messiah, the teachings of the Messiah, we are nourished. We are filled full, just like we need to eat food. We're given daily bread spiritually so that we are spiritually nourished. He gives us light so that we might be a light to the nations and get fuels us in that way. He's also the one that by his stripes we are healed, that he has been washed us clean, that his though our sins are as scarlet, he makes it white as snow through his blood. He has made us clean and pure. So the, so the connection between the idea of what we do with olives is connects directly to the Messiah. Now, Judaism, who doesn't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, and there are certain sects of Judaism that question how much of what a Messiah is, so to speak. And they always take this and relate it to the life of Moses. The life of Moses, how Moses, he went through trials and tribulations. He murdered somebody. He was sold out by his brethren, yet he continued to serve the Lord. He was the greatest prophet to the Lord that ever lived. And that he, through the pressing and the crushing and the tribulations and trials he faced, the goodness of Moses all came out so that we could enjoy. They also relate it to uh, Israel, the life of Israel, how Israel's been oppressed for many years, and that Israel is likened to the olives, the pressing of olives, that through the struggles and trials and tribulations Israel has faced, then the goodness, the oil can come out because those have been pressed and crushed. I actually agree with all of those analogies as well, but I would go so far as to say the best analogy is, of course, the connection to the Messiah. Once again, the children of Israel were commanded to be the ones who bring this oil. They had to give of themselves. I heard a great analogy from my good friend, Dr. David Jones at Ruach Ministries in Florida. He had a great teaching on this that he specifically said, when you take olives and you take a whole bunch of them and you put them all together in one big vat and you put them in there, you know what happens is the weight of all of the olives being pressed together, just the weight, you don't even have to put the extra effort in to press them, but you just put all the olives together in a vat. You know what starts to collect at the bottom? Oil already begins to press and the goodness starts to come out. The same thing would come of wine. I know a lot of us aren't 100% familiar with the, uh, the physical nature of an olive. They're actually very firm when they're harvested and they're ripened. And there's a lot of uh, work that has to be done before we get the you know canned black olives that we get and we put on top of our tacos and put in everything. There's a lot of process before it gets to, to that point. So we don't understand the true nature of these olives, but think about grapes. We're all for familiar with grapes. When you go to put a bunch of grapes into a wine vat and you just load them up in all that weight, you know there's already being juice being produced in the bottom, that all that weight is already producing the goodness that comes from the fruit. That actually ministers to me, encourages me greatly, where the idea that when we come together as a community, as a fellowship, and we all, you know what, sometimes we get all kind of bunched up and maybe we run out of room. Whenever you're in a fellowship that is bursting at the seams with room, usually it's a fellowship that is joined together and everyone loves one another. When you don't have the room to, to kind of spread out, the people come together and it's, there's a joyous um, time when there's a fellowship that's, you know, busting at the seams when it comes to the facility that they're in. I liken that unto 
a bunch of olives being put into a vat and already collecting together and we already press each other together and immediately goodness already comes out. And you can think about that in the idea of a close-knit fellowship where everyone loves each other, everyone's given hugs every single uh, weekend when they get together for fellowship and the goodness already is coming out of each and every one of us when we are close together and pressed against one another. And I think that's just an amazing testimony that when God draws us all together, that the goodness is already being produced, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to produce the goodness of who we are, that God called us and brought us out of the nations. We're all coming together to be joined into Israel in the same way that every member of the family of Israel had to bring oil, had to bring this offering so that light could be had. We, too, are trying to bring that goodness out of each other, iron sharpens iron, so that we might be a light to the nations. And that's what we are intending to do with through our testimony. There's so many other things we can talk about. We, we could spend a long time just talking about oil and the connection that it is. We can talk about the parable of ten virgins where the five wise prepared themselves for the coming of the bridegroom by having oil ready for the Lord and that they were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And then there were five foolish that did not have oil, did not prepare themselves. And so you can connect to that story as well. And there's many things we can continue to talk about the idea of this olive oil, and we can have a whole teaching on that. But there is more to this Torah portion that I want to bring out, especially when it comes to the sanctification of the high priest. If we go into chapter 28 here in Exodus, it now says this, where it says, Now take Aaron, your brother, his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priests. And as priest, and these are the garments which they are to make a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as priests. Here we have the beginning of the instruction for the creation of the garments of the high priest. One of the things that I find very fascinating here that you might not have noticed here is that Moses' name is not specifically mentioned here. We're only talking about Aaron. Now, we know God is speaking to Moses, and God is telling him, take Aaron, your brother. So we know who's being talked about here. But you might find it very fascinating that in all of this Torah portion here that extends all the way through... Um, also going until the middle of chapter 30, we have nowhere in this Torah portion will you find the name of Moses. Moses is the one being spoken to. So many times it says God spoke to Moses and said, do this, or tell the children of Israel this. There's no exposition of people of the description of what Moses did in any actions here. All of this instruction from this Torah portion, nowhere is Moses' name even mentioned. You might ask the question, why is that? Well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, the focus here of our Torah portion is upon Aaron being the high priest. 
This is giving Aaron his due in the sense that Moses' name is not here. We're talking about Aaron. We're talking about him doing. We got lots of stories about Moses and how we know what Moses did. And sometimes it seems like Aaron, you know, being even though he was the older brother, he doesn't seem to get as much credit as maybe Moses does in the course of all of these stories and instruction. Here we have the focus solely being upon Aaron, the high priest. I also like the fact that this focus is beyond Moses. We're not talking about Moses here. We're talking about the setting apart of someone who is going to be anointed and set apart from the rest of Israel. Obviously, we're talking about Aaron, the high priest, but we are also talking about Yeshua, the Messiah. The Messiah, once again, being the anointed one, and that we, he is the prophecy, prophet, he is the one that comes, that fulfills the prophecy that says, there will be one greater than Moses who will come before you. Rather than always going back to Moses, the, the Judaism will always say, oh, well, it's all about Moses, just like they described the pressing of the olives being a parallel to the life of Moses. We're not talking about Moses in this Torah portion. We are talking about somebody else greater than he that will do a service that is different and sometimes or even possibly I dare say greater than any service that Moses did. That's what we're talking about here in our portion. And we, this will tie directly into the life and the testimony of Yeshua and what he is. He is our high priest to us. So that is the focus of this portion here, the fact that Moses' name is never mentioned. It says here three times in that paragraph that I just read, the first four verses of chapter 28. It says three times, it says that he may minister to me, capital M-E, God, that the whole service, the primary job of the high priest was to be in service to the Most High God, not to the children of Israel. Not to the tabernacle, not so that he might be the intercessor between here. No, his main service is to God. He worked for God. He had the best boss that anybody's ever had in the entire world. He works for him. Let us never get that mixed up when we think about the high priest, the role of the high priest, that yes, he's our intercessor between us and the Father, and we think that it's all like, oh, he, you know, he's on our side, he's always going to be an advocate for us. That's a warning that we have, may have heard in Scripture where it says this, do other people use the role of the Messiah, the fact that he is our sacrifice, and he has so much grace for us that we use that as license to do whatever we want? Of course we do. People have always used the grace of God to say, oh, you know, I have grace. I'm once saved, always saved, don't have to worry about it. I have the grace of God, so I can go and do whatever I wish to do. <laughs> There's a book right there at the end of your Bible. Go ahead and flip to Jude. Give that one a read. It's only one chapter. Warning us against people who do exactly that, that use the grace of God as license to disobey and to offend the commandments of God. May I warn you that we shouldn't do that. And may I remind you that if you possibly are looking to the Messiah and the role of him as our Savior and our high priest and our advocate before the Lord, and that we seem to sometimes think, oh, he, he's always on our side. He's always going to cover our sins and our, our iniquities. And, and, and he, we always got that. Mm. I would use this as a moment to teach that his primary service is to the Most High God and to you second. That he is not in this position 
so that he is his 100% job is to be your advocate. No, his 100% position is to serve the Most High God. Whatever he says to do, that's what he's going to do. And if there's going to be judgment to be had, if there's going to be, you know, a, our Heavenly Father is needing to share some tough love with his people, with his children, our high priest is not going to be, we can't go running to the high priest and say, aren't you our advocate for judgment? He's like, no, I serve him. So we need to understand that first and foremost, this is the role of the high priest. And this carries over, of course, to the role that our Messiah plays as well. Here in our passage, we're going to create some beautiful garments, clothing that the high priest is going to wear that is going to set him apart from all others that are in the camp of Israel. It says here in our scripture that it was created for glory and for beauty. Some translations also say the word majesty, that these were royal garments. They're going to be made of the same blue, purple, scarlet, and gold material that was used to make the coverings of the tabernacle is going to be used in the making of this garment. That immediately creates that connection between the high priest and the service of the tabernacle. They were intimately connected. It was the same fabric that covered the sanctuary is the same fabric that covered the high priest. There's a connection being made here. These were royal garments. They were made with gold, blue, purple. We, back in ancient times, people didn't wear all different colorful clothing. They wore very plain clothing. If somebody wore something that was of these kind of colors, it was a sign of royalty. It was a sign of absolute majesty that this is somebody who's very important. And that's exactly one of the things that's being set apart here. It was a uniform of sorts. It was to sanctify Aaron to do the job of being the high priest. These garments remained in the tabernacle. He did not go home wearing these garments. He did not. When Aaron left the service of the tabernacle and went back to his tent, he didn't wear these garments when he went back. When he entered back into the tent, into amongst the tents of the children of Israel. When he went back, he took off the garments of praise and of majesty and of glory, and he went and he appeared as one of the common men. Now, of course, that he was still Aaron. Everybody knew who he was. But he still took off the garments of majesty and of power so that he could walk amongst the people. This is what the Messiah did as well. When we're talking about the role that God has played through the Messiah, that he has he, that he took off his garments of glory that he wears in heaven and he came to walk amongst us as a common man. We see that same pattern in what the Messiah has done for us, walking amongst us, as what the high priest did and what Aaron did when he left the service of the tabernacle. It's the same thing, like I said, a uniform. We, we see examples of this, that obviously we have a police officer that wears a police uniform when he's on duty. But then when he's off duty, he's not wearing his uniform. He takes it off and then he walks amongst this common man. That doesn't change the fact that he still has a job to do in the service and the oath that he has taken to serve and to protect. And that's why you hear the stories on the news of off-duty police officers being a hero and doing what they needed to do. It's the same thing with, you can even simplify this or make it even more secular and talk about a sports star, an athlete that wears a uniform on the field. And, he's, and, and he might be the best at his position when he's on the field. When he goes home, is he always wearing his uniform? Of course not. He goes home, he puts on the normal clothes. Now, we, under, they, we have to get this understanding so that we know and understand the different roles that even the person can play. 
And we, this is critical for us to understand the power and the deity of Yeshua himself. That it is possible that he is the representative of God. He serves God. He ministers to God. But it's not an offense for him to come down and walk and, and walk amongst us in a mortal temporary shell of skin that we somehow think, oh, he's the Messiah. How, how could he? He's God. How can he be God and walk amongst us and be mortal and be subject to temptations? It's the same way that Aaron can still be the high priest, yet he looks like a common man when he's walking amongst the camp of Israel. We have to understand this when we're talking about God. Let us never presume to know that God would never do this or never do that. We have to understand that God has filled this role and played the role of high priest. And we learn these principles from our Torah portion talking about Aaron. Now, these garments that are going to be made, like I said, for glory and for beauty, not just for this glory, but they were gorgeous. They were amazing. They, they, they set Aaron apart from every other person. Now, do we have these very specific details of these garments being built, being made? And they were made by artisans who knew, had a great deal of skill in producing these things. And each of them had different representations, different meanings and purposes for what they were. The first thing that's going to be created is something called an ephod. Now, many of us in the modern day, we have no idea what this garment looks like or we've never heard or seen. You can't go down to the store and buy an ephod. What it was, was it was a belt. It was almost like an apron that surrounded his whole body and had shoulder straps that came up over the top. And that then they could then be attached to the rest of the garment. So it's almost like a reverse apron that covered more of his uh, of the back when it came up over. And that this was to be something, this was his outer garment. That we're creating this and this is what you would see on the outside. Now in addition to this, we're also going to make a breastplate. That's made from the same fabric material, but it's only going to be a, what's called a span. Which is about the distance from a thumb to a pinky finger. Somewhere between 8 and 9 inches. And there's going to be a square that sits in the middle that's going to be attached. The shoulder straps of the ephod are going to be attached by gold chains to the breastplate and then there's going to be gold chains at the bottom of the breastplate that are going to connect to the ephod and so this is all going to kind of form one piece even though technically it's two things as it's being described here so as i said this ephod this was made of gold purple scarlet material and blue thread and fine linen and it was all woven together and it was all connected and on the shoulders of this ephod it says that they were to take two what in the hebrew are called shoham stones which we call and we believe are onyx stones. And on these shoulders, on these onyx stones, it was to be engraved the names of the children of Israel. Six names on each stone, upon each shoulder. And so it's fascinating when you look at this, and, and, and people have tried to, sages of Israel have tried to speculate exactly how the names were written and how they were engraved on these shoulders. Uh, there's consensus on the idea that these stones that were written, there was obviously six names on each side, but also that there was, when you take the names of the sons of Israel, that there was exactly 25 Hebrew letters on each stone. That even though the names were different, even though there were still six words of different, of different lengths, six names, there were 25 letters on each shoulder. There was balance to be had. And what it does say is that Aaron shall bear the names. This is in verse 12 of uh, chapter 28. Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. 
This is the idea. This is describing now this role of this high priest that he is, yes, a representative of the children of Israel and that he bears the weight of the whole congregation of Israel upon his shoulders. Where do you bear a burden? You bear it on your shoulders if you're going to carry something heavy. And believe you me, the responsibility of bearing the uh, burden of the all the whole congregation of Israel was a heavy burden. But it was put in a place where the shoulders, where it could be, where, where, where that could be bared. This is also, whenever you see the number two, and we have these two stones, that this was also to stand as a witness. And this connection also, there, there's a couple of different ways that this is all connected together, is that you have, specifically in verse 10, where it says that you shall write six of their names on one stone. That very little phrase right there in the Hebrew is shisha mishmatam al, and the first letter of each of those Hebrew words is a shin, a mem, and an ayin, and that spells the word shema. That we have an acrostic, and so you, one might look and just be like, okay, that's kind of a stretch. You take the first letter of each of these words, and you make another word, and it's like, okay, that could be coincidental. Yeah, it's fascinating if we want to connect this back to the Shema. What's interesting is that phrase, the Shema, that we say every single week, that it has in each clause of the Shema, there's six words in the first part of the clause, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Echad, and the, then the last phrase, Baruch Shem Kevod Olam Va'ed, both six words in each clause of the Shema, and oh, guess what? There's 25 letters in each phrase. Fascinating that it's like, what a coincidence that these things would actually, that's a little more than a coincidence now that we're connecting the Shema to this idea of these names being burned, uh, burdened upon the shoulders of the high priest. It's also fascinating, if we back into the study of the Shema, is that the Shema, there's two Hebrew letters that are enlarged in the writing of the Shema all the way in Deuteronomy 6, and that is the... Um, the Ayin at the end of Shema, and it's the Dalit at the end of Echad, and you put those two letters together, and they form the word witness. So again, we're, we're tying this all together with the Shema's, that these are to be a witness to the sons of Israel. One other fascinating note, these are, again, just amazing things that when people have figured this out, it's amazing revelation. Uh, in all the names of the sons of Israel, there's two letters that don't appear in any of their names. And that those letters are a het and a tet. Those two letters wouldn't have appeared anywhere on these stones. Het and tet, when put together, form the primary letters of the word chata, which is the word sin. So when you have the burden that is upon the shoulders, there is no chata, there is no sin upon the one who is carrying the burden. Again, the parallels to the Messiah are uncanny, of course. So now, as we go in and we make the breastplate that is going to be established here, this is where it says, like I said, it, it is also woven artistically with the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And then 12 stones are going to be placed upon this breastplate. And these 12 stones also will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in your translation, there is a listing specifically of all the 12 stones, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 28. And every translation is different. There is very little consensus on exactly what these stones were, uh, 
and what they represent. We know they represented the tribes of Israel, but we don't know what exact kind of stones they are. And there's many theories, and you can find and you can search. I've done a lot of research on this to try and learn and figure out perhaps what these stones were. There's many different sources. There's the Midrash Rabbah, which is all the history of the oral traditions passed down through the rabbis of what these stones looked like. There's translations that go into the Greek Septuagint. There's the original Hebrew translations, but again, we don't know what they translate to for modern stones. But compiling compiling all that information together, I have a feeling and an opinion of what those stones actually were. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I talked uh, last year that one of the things that me growing up I always loved collecting things. I was a big collector of trading cards. I loved collecting comic books. And my kids loved collecting things. We go to the beach and we come back with two buckets of shells and they have this amazing collection. Well, one of the best things that you can actually collect are rocks. And people have amazing rock collections. One of the things that I desired to do as I've gotten older is that me, I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual person. And so I have desired to try and figure out perhaps what these stones may have looked like. For the simple case of being able to just see and the the word of God becomes more real to me. And so if you'll indulge me for a little bit, I brought my rock collection here to share with you guys here on this Sabbath teaching that in, in an effort to try and teach about these stones and again what the consensus or actually I should say there's no consensus, but really what my opinion is on these stones. And so I will now give a, pretty much a demonstration here as to what I believe these stones were. The first stone of the breastplate, this was always it was done in four rows where three stones each in each row, so it created 12. So there's three across the top, then three more, then three more, then three more. There's 12 stones. In Hebrew, we always read right to left. And so we believe whenever it says what the first stone is, that its placement was here close to the heart of the of the high priest. So the first stone is on the top row on, if you're looking at the observer, the top right, but it was the closest to the heart. Now this stone in the Hebrew is called Odim. And there is consensus on this, that this was a stone that was red. It was red. And it's fascinating also that if it's going to represent the sons of Israel, that it would represent Reuben, who was the firstborn of Israel. It's also fascinating that Reuben, when you hear about the banner that they flew when they held up their banners and they were assigned and um, aligned in martial array in the camp of Israel, they, wore, they flew a banner that was red. And now the Temple Institute, this is also where a lot of information comes from as well, has related to the fact that these stones probably appeared in the same colors of the banners that was flown by the children of Israel. So the representation here, this first stone is red, and it represents Reuben. Now, a couple of opinions on what this stone could have been. The first stone I have for you is a piece of red jasper. This is what some people consider the stone possibly could have been. It comes in some very rich red colors. It's also possible when you think of a redstone, the first thing you might think of is a ruby as well. And so I actually have a piece of raw ruby, which actually appears mostly purple in its raw state. But the thing about ruby is this, is that it is a type of stone called a corundum that is a little bit too hard to cut and to produce when you're talking about the, the technology that they had of the day to be able to cut and carve into these stones, corundum, which is also sapphire and ruby fall into the same category, is just a little less hard than diamond. 
very difficult to cut. One of the things that a lot of people believe this stone actually was, was red carnelian. That this stone is very common in uh, the areas of Africa and the Middle East. And this is one of the other things when it comes to what I believe the stones to be, is that I like to look for the origin to be found somewhere in Africa or the Middle East. You had to remember the children of Israel had to have these gemstones maybe brought with them from Egypt, so they had to be prevalent there. This stone, red carnelian, is a softer stone, easier to cut, very commonly red. And again, we believe that this was the red stone, and this is my opinion, that this was the red stone that represented Reuben. So we have our first stone selected here, and I'm going to place it here in my collection. The next stone is the second stone in the middle of the top row, and the Hebrew word was pitdah. Now, many of the rabbis have said that this stone was green. Now, in some translations even say that this stone was, it was emerald, or that it was um, possibly even a greener version of topaz, or whatever the translation in the Bibles might say, but many, there is much consensus that it was green. So it's possible that it could have been jade. Jade is common in the Middle East, especially in India. You've got to remember Egypt. They, they traded with all different kinds of people of the land, so these precious stones could very much have been in the possession of the children of Israel. It's also possible that it was emerald. This is a piece of emerald that I uh, ordered online, that this is a raw state of emerald from the country of Zambia in Africa, which is some of the most beautiful pieces of emerald that you can find that's found in Africa. Part of me believes that this really was emerald. It would have been the richest, greenest uh, gemstone that they could find. It's also soft enough to cut, and it's a type of barrel. And so I believe that it really could have been emerald, particularly one from Sambia, Africa. So that's my opinion on that stone as well. This, is, this next one is very cool. The last stone on the first row represented the tribe of Levi. And the Hebrew word is baraketz. And again, translations all vary from what it, what it was. There is a group of rabbis that specifically think that it was a stone that had striations of red, white, and black in them. Funny enough, the tribe of Levi flew a banner that was red, black, and white. The previous stone was Simeon, I should say, and it was a green banner. That's why we think that that stone was green. For the tribe of Levi, very fascinating. If you ever look up banded agate that is found in Africa, it's most prevalently, prevalently found in Madagascar, that it is a banded agate that naturally has striations of white, red, and black in them. And it naturally looks this way. And so this stone, I mean, I don't know if there's anything I've ever been drawn to an idea that this had to have been the stone that represented Levi. I once showed this to uh, my good friend Rico Cortez, who loves studying everything to do with the, uh, the priesthood. And this was the first stone he saw, and he was all like, man, I really like that one. And I was like, you know what tribe that represents, right? And he was all, what? Levi. And he was like, <laughs> he laughed because he loves everything to do with the priesthood. And so this stone is what I truly believe, banded agate, to be the priesthood, the one that represents Levi. Now on the second row, we have then the representation of Judah. This is in the order of the sons of Israel and their birth.
Judah, many people believe that the Hebrew word nofech, that this was a gemstone that was bluish green, light blue, kind of bluish green, which corresponds, yes, to the banner that Levi flew. And there's a lot of people that believe that this could have been turquoise. So the collection, in my collection, I have a piece of turquoise. This is Tibetan turquoise that, of course, is from somewhere in in, um, Asia, I should say, and that it's more likely in the region that it could have been found amongst the Egyptians. Turquoise is also very prevalent in Egyptian jewelry and things like that, and so it is a natural, naturally found there. So I believe that this is the representation of the tribe of Judah on the second row. Now we come to the second stone of the second row. In the Hebrew word, this is called saphir. Now, there is very closely connected and even just sounds like the same word as sapphire. Now, there is a question as to what tribe this represents. If we're going in order of their birth, then the next one that was born to one of the concubines of Jacob, that was Dan. However, this also, uh, many of the rabbis believe that the order of the sons was ordered first. You had all six sons of Leah first represented. Then the sons of the concubines, that would be Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And then the last two are represented by the sons of Rachel, which was, of course, Joseph and Benjamin. And so that's what many people believe that is the order that was represented. And so I tend to feel that that, yes, is the order represented. So this next stone would represent Issachar. They flew a a banner of blue, dark blue. So then we have the the conundrum of corundum where we have sapphire. There's a raw piece of sapphire. But again, we question whether this was possibly too hard for the engravers to actually engrave. But we do believe that word saphir does speak to the color that it represents, which Issachar did fly a banner of blue. The more common mineral that is blue is lapis lazuli. The most beautiful lapis lazuli comes from Afghanistan, very common to the region, and that there's even a uh, philosopher that said that this Hebrew word saphir represented a blue stone that had flecks of gold in it. And lapis lazuli does reflect that. It has slight little uh, flecks of gold mixed in with it. And so I am firmly believing, a lot of people do, that this stone that was used here was lapis lazuli. Now we come to the last stone on the second row, representing the tribe of Zebulun. The stone Hebrew name was called Yaholam. And many people believe Zebulun flew a banner of white, that this was a white stone. First thing you might think of is diamond. Once again, we run into the same problem of ancient times not being able to mine diamond or to be able to cut it. So we do believe that it was. there's a couple of other things it could have been. It could have been Indian moonstone, which is white. It is very precious. It's got a little shine to it. And it could have been white moonstone. Also very common is quartz. Quartz is a soft mineral, very common throughout the entire world. And a lot of people believe that this could have been quartz. This in the... Um, In the Temple Institute, in their breastplate, they use quartz for this stone as well. So I believe that that is also the stone that was used. Now we come to the first stone of the third row. This represents now the tribe of Dan. This is one of the most confusing or possibly the one that sort of deviates from what 
the um, colors representing the tribes actually means. The Hebrew word is Lasham, and nobody really knows what that translates to. So many people have thought that it could have been a blue stone because Dan flew a banner of blue, in which case perhaps lapis lazuli was used for that one, and maybe some other blue stone might have been used for Issachar. But the thing that most people relate to, especially through historians, is that this was some form of orange amber that it was, a, it was made from hardened tree sap. So I have a piece of Baltic amber, and many people think that this stone was, in fact, amber, that it had uh, electrical properties as well, and there's lots of articles that are written about this stone itself. So we don't know exactly what this one is, but most people believe that it was, in fact, Baltic amber that represented Dan. Now we come to Naphtali and Gad, which is the second and third stones on the third row. Naphtali flew a purple banner, and many people believe that he's clearly represented by amethyst. Beautiful purple. It's a type of quartz, rose-colored quartz, very common. And this one piece is from Morocco, and that this was represented of Naphtali. Now Gad was represented by agate, and it flew a banner that was gray. One of the most coolest formations of agate that I've ever seen is Botswana agate, which is gray, black, and white, very, and is one of the coolest kind of the striations. Now, the question is, is which order these actually were in? Because most translations think the agate came before the amethyst, when in the ordering of the tribes, Naphtali should come before Gad. So we don't really know the exact order of this, and so I'm going to place them in really what more of the consensus is, is that the agate came first, representing Gad, and then Naphtali came second, which is then represented by the purple amethyst. Now we come to the last row, where we have the last sons, Asher, Joseph, and Benjamin. Asher flew a uh, banner that was light green, light green, light blue, and that many translations translate this as barrel. Barrel is actually a very wide description of many different types of gemstones. One of the most common and most precious forms of barrel is aquamarine. Some of the best aquamarine comes from Pakistan, and this piece right here is from the Shigar Valley in Pakistan, piece of aquamarine. It is bluish green, light blue in color, does correspond with the banner that Asher, uh, that Asher flew as well. And so I believe that this is the stone that represented Asher in this position down here on the very first row. Next, we have Joseph, and it's called a Shoham stone. We've already said the Shoham stone was a stone of onyx that was used for the shoulder pieces. Onyx comes in many different colors. One of the most common ones is black, black with some striations of gray or white, and that this was, I believe, corresponding with the black banner that Joseph flew, that it was a black stone as well of black onyx and the last stone is benjamin the last son that was born and what they have said about this stone and about the banner of benjamin is that it was multicolored. it had many different colors of representations of what it is some people think this could have been a form of jasper comes in many different colors multi-colors all over the place however some people in the um, uh, temple institute in jerusalem says that it was opal Opal is actually one of the most precious stones that can be found, and some of the best opal in the world comes from Ethiopia.
So my 15 gram piece of Ethiopian opal is what I have to represent the tribe of Benjamin as it is a stone that represents multiple colors. When the light hits this in multiple ways, you see many different colors that come out of it. So I believe this to be the stone that represents Benjamin. So with our collection complete, I submit that this is the representation of the breastplate of the high priest, my, of my rock collection of what I have accumulated. Again, as time goes on, there might be better specimens that I can find, or there might be um, certain more knowledge comes into play that might change this order and how it's laid out. But this is my collection as I have it, representing the breastplate of the high priest. Again, this is not the idea that I'm trying to replicate or usurp or be something of the high priest. I like to be, as a visual learner, see these things so that, I, so that the uh, scripture comes alive even more so as we study and we read this scripture. Let me continue on describing the garments of the high priest and some of the other purposes of what they were to do. It does talk about this breastplate. It was also called the breastplate of judgment. That When I said that this was a square span, that was a width of a span, eight to nine inches wide, it was actually a piece that folded underneath and there was a pocket. Inside this pocket, the high priest possessed the Urim and the Thummim. And these were two stones that were used to inquire of God anything that was too hard to determine or to pass judgment for. And so we see an example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 30 when King David goes before the high priest and inquires of the Lord. And the high priest uses the Urim and the Thummim to determine what the answer is and what the word from God actually is. We don't know exactly how this works, but we do know that Yeshua, being our high priest, that he is the judge. He is the judge of us. He makes righteous judgments in all of the things that he says and does. And so this idea that the breastplate was a breastplate of judgment fits in with the role of God in the high priest. Other garments that were created, starting in verse 31 of chapter 28, we talk about a robe of all blue. That there was a robe that, that the high priest wore underneath the ephod that was of all blue. And at the bottom of this robe, there were pomegranates made of blue, purple, and scarlet. That there were these woven shapes of pomegranates that dangled from the robe. Also, what dangled from this robe was a series of bells. And it specifically says, of these bells, in verse 35, it says, It shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and the sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, that he may not die. Very interesting here. This was a series, this was a warning sign for the high priest. One, anybody who was in the tabernacle, you could hear the bells and you would know wherever the high priest was. But this also, for this case, was also for God to know when the high priest was approaching. So much so that it's all like, oh, he hears the bells? Oh, okay, so then if somebody's coming too close to the holy place, to the presence of God, God has the power to strike him dead. If he hears the bells, oh, that's just my high priest. That's the one who ministers before me. And God would know this. Very interesting here. My wife, actually, as I was studying this, my wife brought this out, and I thought it was an amazing connection that she brought out. You go to Psalm 100. And it talks about how we enter in to the courts of the Lord with thanksgiving and praise. 
that we are to make a joyful noise when we enter into the courts of the Lord so that he knows when we are approaching. In the same way that these bells hearkened the the coming of the high priest to the presence of the Lord. And I love that connection for us personally, that we should rejoice and praise the Lord as the, the sounding of a bell so that when we enter into the presence of the Lord. I thought that was an amazing, uh, an amazing parallel. Also... Very fascinating. The high priest, one of his main duties, especially on the holiday of Yom Kippur, is that he was to go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement upon the Ark of the Covenant. But when he went to do that, and this whole procedure is described in Leviticus chapter 16, when he went to do that, he only wore the white garments of a common priest. He did not wear the blue robe that had the bells. So this would have been a very fearful thing. The Lord tells him, wear these bells so I don't strike you dead when you come into my presence. Oh, by the way, there's one time of the year I want you to come into my presence, and you're not supposed to wear the bells. This might have been a scary thing for, for the high priest in this job that he was to do. And so this is very fascinating. We'll cover that when we get to Leviticus 16 in our Torah cycle. But this idea that the priest, the high priest, had to cast off his garments of glory and majesty and dress as a common man to come and approach the presence of God. This is exactly what Messiah Yeshua did for us, where he is. He cast off his garments of glory and majesty, came to dwell among us, and then by his blood he made atonement for us. And you can see the amazing representation of that in the service of Yom Kippur. Some of the other garments that were made, there was a turban that was made as well as a gold plate or a crown that was upon his head that was fastened by a blue cord that said in Hebrew, holiness to the Lord. That the high priest, that he very much was distinguished. When you saw him, there was this crown of gold above his head. Again, this was a, a garment that was worthy of a king, that was majestic in the fact that it, there was a crown here as well. And so then he had a tunic of linen thread underneath that there was multiple layers so that there was modesty all the way down to the linen trousers that he, there's a prescription here basically for the underwear that the priests were to wear when in the service of the tabernacle and these things were to be a statute throughout all their generations forever for all the descendants of Aaron, his sons, and those after him. Now, one of the things about these garments, these linen garments, something else that's fascinating, connects back to the beginning of our Torah portion. These garments, after they were used in the course of the tabernacle, during sacrifice, they would become unclean. They would have blood on them. They would be worn. And then what to do with these holy garments that were used? Well, as they made new garments, the old garments, garments were used as wicks for the menorah and the lampstand and that these were what was used this linen that lights on fire very easily was used in the menorah and used as with the oil as fuel for the menorah you find it fascinating here that what you have to do is you've got to burn up and burn away any of that uncleanliness that might have that we might bring that has to all be burned away before we can go into the presence of the Lord and we have to be mixed and made pure with that oil of anointing so that we don't just burn up and become nothing see here's what you can do is you can take a wick and you can put it in a lamp with no oil and you can light it up and it'll burn for a very short amount of time 
the oil is used so that that wick may sustain and be burned on a regular basis and it can be actually used for a better purpose than to just be lit and flamed out. You ever heard, seen the testimony of somebody? who believes and they believe in God and they walk and they were like, I, I want to do these things for God, but they get burned up so quickly and then they don't, they don't last. They don't stay in their faith in God. And it's almost like a wick that's been lit on fire, but it had no oil. It had no purity mixed with it so it might be sustained. And that's something that we can think about. Another thing that is brought before and brought to the menorah so that it might be fueled. We brought the oil. Also, the wicks represent us and the garments of the priests to represent how that is to be burned continually. And the two have to work hand in hand. So fascinating thing about that. Also, the, uh, Aaron and his sons had to go in. They had to trim the wicks all the time. You couldn't burn it up so you burn the oil too fast. And you can't cut it too short that it doesn't produce enough light. It had to be just right so that, and had to be tended to. And you had to cut away the burned, the, the burned up part of the wick because it was unclean. It wasn't usable anymore. So again, this is all going back to the service of the menorah. Now, in chapter 29, we have the very elaborate procedure of sanctifying Aaron and his sons for the service of the priesthood. There's a great deal of, of detail here about the burnt offering, the peace offerings, the wave offerings that were to be brought. They were to be consecrated. They had to sit in the doorway of the tent of meeting for ten for uh, seven days. They could only eat certain things, bread that was made here in this chapter, as well as the fat of the ram, the meat of a ram that they could eat. And so for seven days they were set apart and they were consecrated. Now we're going to come back to this procedure because there's an amazing parallel between this and also the cleansing of the leper that comes to us in the book of Leviticus. So we'll come back to some of this detail a little bit later. One of the things I do want to point out that's fascinating here is this, is that the oil, the anointing oil was placed upon Aaron when he was anointed and set apart to be the high priest. And every time that in our scripture that it's referred to Aaron as the high priest, it actually calls him this. It says in the Hebrew, it's called Hakohen Hamashiach, that is the was the priest that was anointed. That Hebrew word Mashiach means anointed one. That, of course, is the same word for Messiah as well. Mashiach, the anointed one. The verb to anoint is Mashiach, which, again, is the root of that word. So every time Aaron was represented, and every time here when we go through the rest of the Torah cycle, if you ever see where it says Aaron the high priest or the anointed priest, or the high priest who was anointed. We have a representation of the Messiah in our scripture. That is what he is to represent. He was anointed and he was set apart from the rest of the children of Israel. And it's all because of that oil, that olive oil. Our Torah portion concludes here in the first couple of verses of chapter 10, the first 10 verses of chapter 10 in the book of Exodus. And here we have, after we've consecrated the high priests, after we've had also the instruction for the daily offerings that were to be continually produced on the, burnt, uh, the altar of burnt offering, we then have the instruction to build, build the altar of incense. I mentioned last week that there, this was a piece of a furnishing that belonged in the sanctuary. But why wasn't it built with the rest of the furnishings of the sanctuary? Well, the thing that I like to believe is this. There had to be certain things in place before this altar could be brought 
in. We have to look at what this altar represents. Now, what this altar is going to be, it's going to be small. It's going to be a cubit by a cubit square, so it's going to be about 18 inches square. And then it's going to be about a yard tall, which is two cubits tall. And incense was going to be burned on this golden altar. And it says specifically at verse 9, it says this, You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. This is solely for incense. Now, this is, again, going back to the common description of God in his house, that he wanted his house to smell good as well. There's light, there's bread on a table, there's a place for him to sit, and there is incense being burned that is just fragrant, smells wonderful, and is fragrant. And so the sanctuary would have had a beautiful smell to it as well. But we also look at what the sages say about this incense. The sages call this incense the prayers of the saints. That this is what goes before the Lord whenever we pray before God. That may our prayers rise as incense in the nostrils of the Lord. May he find a sweet savor, a sweet smell in the words that we pray back to our Heavenly Father. And that is what this represented. And this was something that was to be continual, continually served in the sanctuary in the presence of God. And one of the things, if we relate these, this incense to our prayers, one of the things that we must learn and understand is that we must have a fervent prayer before the Lord. That is not to be a casual prayer, not to be a prayer that is just something we do every single day. No, it's something we should do continually, but it should be one that is solely directed toward Him. We don't mix anything with it. We don't do a prayer that includes a grain offering with it or a burnt offering with it. This is a solemn prayer of fasting when we offer up a prayer that is to be a sweet smell in the nostrils of the Lord, that it should be a prayer of fasting, of reverence, of holiness, and not mixed with any other offering. That is what this altar and what this offering of incense represented. And that's why it's specific to say this is not to be a part of a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a drink offering. This is solely to be this kind of offering. We'll come back to this portion as well when we talk about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, in the book of Leviticus, where they make a mistake later on in our story, and they do offer up strange fire that was specifically the same Hebrew word here that was not to be offered on this altar of incense. Again, if this altar of incense represents our fervent prayers before the Father, one of the things that why this is now being instructed is there has to be something established first before this can work. See, because no, no common man could go into the holy place. Only the high priest and the sons of Aaron could. And they went in, they offered this incense. For us, for those, our prayers to be heard by God, they have to be carried by an intercessor. There has to be someone who stands in the gap, who is and who stands between us and our Heavenly Father, who carries our prayers to the Heavenly Father. And again, this is the establishment of the role of the high priest and the role of our Messiah, that he is our intercessor between us and our Heavenly Father, that when we offer up prayers, how naturally do we say every time that we pray that we pray in the name of what? The name of Yeshua, the Messiah, the name of Jesus Christ. Christians around the world pray in that name. Why? Because he is our intercessor. He is our high priest that brings our prayers to the Father. 
And that he, when he offers the incense upon the altar, that is what that represents. And that's the way that our prayers come before the Father. Now, in the absence of an actual physical tabernacle or temple where these things no longer happen, these instructions are supposed to be a description of the spiritual tabernacle that is inside every single one of us. That when we have invited our Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah, in our hearts, in our lives, to be our high priest, to be our intercessor, it is in his name and by his established glory and authority that he comes into the presence of our, our God and brings those prayers to the Father. And we pray every time, we, you hope that when you pray to God, you hope that God hears it and it, he delights in hearing the prayer. As much as somebody delights in walking into a room and something smells amazing. That, that is the way we wish God to delight in our prayers. And again, we can't have that unless we have an intercessor between us and God. And that is what is established here. The anointed one, the high priest, is the one who did this role and was in service to the Most High God. And for us spiritually today... We have the Messiah who plays the role of high priest for us and is between us and the presence of our Heavenly Father. These passages, as though many people might say that, oh, these are archaic and these, these don't mean anything to us anymore because we don't have a tabernacle, don't have a temple, I would very strongly disagree. As I speak to these things, I hope that you have been encouraged inside your own heart, inside your own tabernacle and temple, that it's like we, we are to believe that we are a temple to the Most High God. This is the description from Scripture of what that temple should be like. It should be clean. It should be pure. It should have no unclean thing in it. It should have light in it and not darkness. And it needs a high priest in there so that that tabernacle might be served continually and perpetually. I pray that we all do that in our own lives, that we continue to serve the Lord continually. May we not be a wick with no fuel that burns out easily, but may we be a wick that is fueled with oil, continually being trimmed, perpetually being fueled by the most purest of things, by the goodness of the fruit that comes from the Father, and that that be the thing that sustains us and that we serve him continually in our lives. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your Torah portion of Tetzaveh. We thank you, Lord, for all of these instructions of the garments of the high priest, Lord, and of the olive oil that was to be brought. Father, and I pray that we be encouraged and strengthened by all of these words and these instructions. Father, I pray that you would continue to make yourself known to your people, Lord. Father, there are many new brethren that are hearing for the first time the Torah cycle, Father, and I pray that these words and these teachings might make the Word of God come alive in their hearts and in their minds, Father. So, Father, I love you, we bless you, and we thank you for all the things that you do in our lives, Lord. Continue to encourage us and strengthen us, nourish us with your daily bread, that is, your word that we read in our scriptures. Father, we love you and thank you. Father, continue to work with us. Lead us with your Holy Spirit. We pray your kingdom come very soon, and your will be done in all things. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, let me do the blessing after the Torah. 
Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing. Shalom.